Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the way the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be back with you at Redeemer Lincoln Square. <clears throat> Excuse me. I had the privilege of preaching here a number of months ago, and that was when everything was online. And so uh, you're one of the first congregations, you're actually the second congregation in many, many months that I've preached to in person. Uh, last week, I was preaching outside in Princeton, New Jersey. And so um, I, I prefer this, actually, uh, quite a bit. Um, I am the assistant professor of pastoral theology and the executive director at Reformed Theological Seminary in New York City. And we've been here since 2015 at the invitation of uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who also is one of our professors. And um, so our, our partnership with the Redeemer Family of Churches is significant to our history and it continues to be significant. And particularly, um, I've enjoyed increased fellowship with this church since coming to the city in 2018. And I was thinking of one word, uh, if I could capture one word that just comes to mind when I think of Redeemer Lincoln Square. And that one word this morning for me, there could be many, but that one word immediately was generosity. Um, I think of this as a generous congregation with a generous spirit toward the city, certainly very generous toward our students as a seminary as you see them um, participating and leading your services. Your pastor is generous with his time toward those in our regional church, mentoring uh, younger pastors, um, generous with his time with me as a friend. I count him a very close friend. And so it's a joy to be among friends this morning. I just want to encourage you um, as a congregation that your generosity rings forth. And of course, there's also the generosity um, this congregation has displayed toward other churches in the midst of what we've seen in, in COVID-19. So this morning, we were looking at the first psalm. And this psalm, I've, the sermon, I've entitled, The Way of Wisdom. I want to begin by sharing with you um, some information about a painting by a Spanish painter of the 19th century called, named Francisco Goya. 
This painting is often called a fight with cudgels or sticks. And in this painting, which Goya painted on the walls of his home, actually, between 1820 and 1823, we're not exactly sure when, you have two men fighting with sticks, but they appear to be mired knee-deep in quicksand. Now, I learned about this painting from a French philosopher named Michael Serres. You may be learning more about him as his works are translated into English. He is a prescient thinker, and back in 1992, he wrote a book called The Natural Contract. And in this book, he's speaking of the natural contract, and he, he puts forward the idea of a natural contract as sort of an antidote to the social contract. The social contract, how political theorists in the Western tradition have theorized how we can have society together. But Ceres points out that part of the theory was not necessarily nature itself. So he's writing just on the advent of concern about climate and those types of things. And as he looks at Goya's painting, he says this, the painter Goya has plunged the dualist knee-deep in the mud. With every move they make, a slimy hole swallows them up so that they are gradually burying themselves together. How quickly depends on how aggressive they are. The more heated the struggle, the more violent their movements become, the faster they begin to sink. The belligerents don't notice the abyss that they're rushing into from the outside as they fight. But we can see it clearly. Of course, Goya is writing this with reference to what he's perceiving as a problem with climate, so don't let that issue distract you. His point is, while we engage in whatever struggle for global dominance we may engage in, we could be forgetting the earth itself. And if the earth swallows us all up, then we're all going to lose. And wouldn't that be foolish to lose perspective to that degree? But when I read these words, the first thing that I thought about was our current cultural moment where you have so much polarized fighting all of the time. One side fighting the other, the right, the left, the this, the that. And so much judgment from each side. I thought I read this passage in preparation for, I read this book in preparation for some research that I'm doing. Knowing this sermon was coming, I thought, that is a picture of something also illustrated in the first psalm. And that is that, wouldn't it be foolish if we're fighting each other all the time with all kinds of zeal, so confident of the righteousness of our cause, when in fact, we're sinking. We're sinking and sinking and sinking to our destruction because we don't have the perspective that we should have focusing on one another rather than focusing on the right thing or when it comes to the first psalm, the right person of God himself. This first psalm stands at the beginning of the Psalter as an invitation 
to see all of the Psalms as an opportunity to reorient your focus on God himself. It's an invitation to choose one of two ways of living. On the one hand, there is the way of the wicked, which is simply a way of describing those who live as if there is no God. On the other hand, there is the way of the wise, those who define themselves in relation to God and live in communion with him and underneath his fellowship and direction. And the first psalm stands at the very beginning of all of the Psalter, which is a book of prayers, a book of worship, a book of orientation of life. And it's inviting you to be wise. Orient your life around the one true God. Cease fighting the wrong thing. Look to God so that you just don't sink into an everlasting despair. This is the way of wisdom, to orient our lives toward the Lord. As we look at this, I wanted to draw our attention to three aspects of this way of wisdom this morning. And the first aspect um, is that the way of wisdom is a way that ascribes judgment to God. Now, those who have taught scripture or preached before know that there's always something awkward in the past about preaching on Psalm 1. It's, it's a beautiful psalm. Right? The language is beautiful. It speaks about the way of blessing, you know, what not to do. It speaks about bearing fruit like a tree planted by the waters. It's beautiful. It's very approachable as well. Has a high degree of resonance with wherever you are within relation to the Christian faith. Its imagery is approachable and it resonates. And then you get to the end and there's awkward moment about the judgment. Not so the wicked. They will not stand in the judgment. And that always seemed a bit awkward to me. And then in preparation for this message, I thought, well, this is much less awkward now. Why is that? Because we are constantly judging one another as a culture. We're the most judgmental culture in my lifetime by a long shot. Which side of an issue you stand upon can get you judgment in your workplace, among your friends, even among your family. There's a lot of talk about this culture of judgment. Some refer to it as cancel culture, of course. There's talk about the way that we communicate in social media, fostering a polarizing culture of judgment. I wonder how many of you this past year have felt judgment. Sometimes in the extreme, you said something and because of the position that you took or what you said, you all of a sudden found either yourself cut off from friends or family or just maybe more of a, a quick acknowledgement and moving on when you saw somebody in the office or I guess you would see them on Zoom in the past year. But the point is, I think actually we're in a moment where this concept of judging one another and the danger of ascribing judgment to ourselves is being felt more than ever. I was reading an article about cancel culture from uh, the online magazine Vox. And the author was, um, the, the sort of slant of the article was more toward saying, you know, there is something to cancel culture. It's about whole, how we hold people accountable. But at the same time acknowledging that um, indeed it can certainly get out of hand. More recently, I read um, uh, even more helpful piece 
in the second quarter issue of the online magazine uh, published in association with Redeemer, Gospel and Life. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller um, had a book review of a book entitled Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. As I read this review, I realized I had believed a myth. The myth that I had believed, and you may have believed it as well, is that the problem with social media is what they call the echo chamber. Everybody heard the echo chamber, right? The problem with social media is that we tune into social media and, and we like things that we like. We, only, we gravitate toward views that we agree with and we're constantly being reinforced by our own position and at least this polarizing situation. Sounds plausible enough. And I believe that. Well, as Tim was summarizing the argument of this sociologist named Chris Bale, turns out that research shows that it's actually not a problem with an echo chamber. An echo chamber would be quite reasonable, right? The, less dat the, the, the more limited data that you get, the more narrow your point of view. That seems very reasonable to me. But the actual problem reveals a little bit more the complexity of the human heart. Summarizing Bale, Tim writes, Bell points to research showing that, on the contrary, daily exposure to opposing political and cultural views only makes people stronger in their views, or even more extreme. People who regularly listen to the opposite opinions did not adjust their views and become more balanced or moderate, because for many people, social media has become a place where they are curating a self. Therefore, opposing views they see as attacks on their own identity. Isn't that interesting? The actual research shows not that you're getting hardened in your position by hearing things you agree with, but that your heart is so insecure <laughs> that you're so inclined to define yourself in relation to how you judge others that you'll harden in the position even when hearing the opposite position over and over and over again. At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for worship on Sunday. You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. Well, that relates in a way to this passage because there is this line of this passage the very first verse speaks about the blessed person, the one who walks not in step with the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor keeps company with mockers, or as one translation says, sits in the seat of scoffers. I can think of no better arena to go and find scoffing than Twitter. What is scoffing? It's one of those words that we use a lot, but we might actually think about what it means, an intuitive sense to it or mocking. I was first exposed to this psalm when I was a high school student. 
And this, we, in my high school, we had a fountain, and we kind of sit around the fountain and eat lunch. And as you know, teenagers can sometimes be unkind to one another, and somebody might walk by, and you might make fun of the way that they were dressed. I never did that. Uh, but somebody else might make fun of the way someone was dressed. It's mocking. It's rude. That's kind of how I saw this. But <clears throat> there's actually something deeper in this type of mocking. There's a de- it's a bigger problem than that even, as is, is unhelpful and mean as that can be. There's this idea of judgment, of superiority in your own position, of putting yourself in the place that in Scripture only God should be the seat of judgment. And as the Cambridge Dictionary says, scoffing is to laugh or talk about a person or an idea in a way that shows you think they are stupid or silly. Your pastor preached one of the most convicting and helpful sermons I've ever heard about Jesus speaking about Raqqa. I remember the, some of you remember the Raqqa sermon. It rocked you. It rocked you, right? We take it so lightly to call someone stupid, to call them a blockhead, to judge them and see them inferior. We, we, we just let it roll away. And the scripture says here, that is not the way of blessing. To put yourself in a place of judgment is a supreme way of folly. And if you remain in that seat, it leads to a fruitless life that in the end, when you come before the one to whom we should ascribe judgment, you perish. And your works are shown, your life, the the fruit of your life is shown as chafe, effervescent, meaningless. So the way of wisdom is to recognize this judgmental tendency in ourselves and to turn from it and ascribe judgment to God. But the good news is as the biblical story unfolds, there's never been and never will be a better person that you actually want to entrust judgment to than the Lord. And this is what I meant about our current moment making it so much easier to preach on this passage. It's never been easier to say Wouldn't you rather have a better judge than today? There's a man in Mississippi, Mr. Flowers, who was recently um, released from prison after, I believe, 20 years. And Judge Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court wrote a majority opinion after uh, many appeals. Time and time again, he had to appeal. And his sentence was overturned because a jury was stacked with white jurors. Self-interest upseating rule of law, poor judgment, destroying 20 years of someone's life. That is one example of what happens when we judge poorly, not to mention all the others that could come to mind. But thankfully, Jesus is a better judge. And as the biblical story unfolds, this judgment referred to in Psalm 1 is a judgment that the Father, God the Father, gives to the Son. This is one of the reasons that Jesus was crucified. He made this plain before the religious leaders of his day, and they took it as an identification of Jesus identifying himself with being God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Why is it such good news that judgment is entrusted to Jesus? Well, for one, unlike you and I, Jesus is a sympathetic judge. The scripture says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, our hearts are so dark that if I walk a mile and, and, and I do it better than you, and you go to walk that same mile, rather than taking sympathy with you, my tendency is to elevate myself and say, hey, I'm better at walking a mile than you. That's the way we function. Jesus functions differently. Jesus walks a mile in your shoes. He feels what it's like. He experiences it down to his core as a human being on this earth. And then rather than taking that credential and leveraging it against you, Jesus goes to the cross and uses everything that he did in the same pathway you would have walked And he puts it to your account as he bears the judgment that you deserve. That's the way Jesus functions. He is sympathetic. He is loving. His judgment is is honest. It is also fully informed. It only takes one word in our present culture to get you removed from whatever space with no possibility of forgiveness many times. That is hypocritical, isn't it? But Jesus' judgment, he knows more. He knows more than just the words. He knows more than just the deeds. His judgment, the scripture says, he knows our hearts. He judges according to the thoughts of the heart. He knows the whole story. Intentions, motives, he knows things we cannot know. And of course, no human being, no human court, no one can know all of this. That's why it's the better part of wisdom according to scripture, to limit the influence of human beings, create safety nets when it comes to exercising judgments, right? Jesus is sympathetic. Jesus knows the heart. And Jesus is sacrificial as a judge. Jesus is one who comes, and though we deserve a judgment, and he could pronounce it upon us, he instead offers an invitation with sympathy and grace and love. I've been in your place. I know what you faced. And yes, because I know your hearts, I know even the best things that you did were shot through with motives that weren't so great. But all of that, I take to myself and I invite you to live under my shade and my blessing and my favor. Yes, the judgment of Jesus is very consequential with everlasting consequences. And yet now more than ever, don't we long for a judge who is sympathetic, who is fair, who is all-knowing, who's always right, 
and even after all of that, is forgiving at his own cost? Ascribe judgment to God and it will lead to life for you. And you will become a source of life to those around you. So the way of wisdom ascribes this judgment to God. The way of wisdom, the next thing we see here is the way of wisdom delights in the law of God. Now you see in the text, verse 2, this person's delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. A common mistake with this passage is to, uh, it's, it's not your fault if you make this mistake unless somebody hasn't told you because it's a, it's a difficult point to catch. A common mistake is to, to not know that law isn't just law the way we think about it. There are judicial laws in the Old Testament, but law especially refers to the first five books of the Bible. And in the Bible, this first five books, law includes promise. So to meditate on the law day and night includes the meditation that this is a God who purposed before the foundation of the world to make a way for you to prosper and to flourish and indeed to make a way for someone else to bear judgment in your place. That is embedded in the law. This is a point that the Apostle Paul makes in the New Testament to the Galatian church and his point to them is simply this. If you don't read the Bible this way, you misunderstand the whole message. If you don't understand that law first includes promise you're going to turn Christianity into a religion of do's and don'ts. You're going to turn Christianity into a terribly oppressive religion where you're just climbing up a ladder, you're mounting up, a, 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 you know, balancing out scales of good deeds and bad deeds and hoping you wind up on the right side and you're going to be judged that way. But the way of wisdom delights in the law of God and it can because the law of God includes the promise of God that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. Let's think about the nature of delight. I'm very grateful for the water. There were two bottles of water thoughtfully placed on the table when I came in this morning, and not knowing I was going to get that, I took two additional bottles on the way in. And so you see they're hiding behind that table over there. It's very thoughtful uh, to provide this water. Now, if, if the water bottle is empty and you have nothing but a plastic bottle that's not anything to be too excited about. I and mean, some of us may be worried about the plastic bottle. To delight in a plastic water bottle would seem a little bit maybe unbalanced. Why is that? It doesn't make any sense. Nothing in that plastic bottle resonates deeply with something that I need or that I should be appreciating at that point. It's functional, but to actually delight in it, that doesn't make sense. You see, we delight in something when that or someone, when that thing or that purpose, or that or when that thing or that person resonates with us in a deep way, resonates with us in a deep way. We already spoke about our need for someone to bear judgment in our place, and the need for a better judge. So we turn to the law, Hebrew word Torah. We delight because we see this promise for us. When we turn to the scriptures, we delight because these scriptures are a source of life in and of 
themselves. So the Bible is not like an instruction manual. You have a car in the glove box. You might not have a car in New York. I rent cars a lot in New York. So I often am trying to figure out how this new car that I'm in works because it's a different car every other week that I'm in. I open up the glove box and there's the manual, right? Some people think the Bible is like that type of a manual, just a transactional book to tell you how to make it through life, point A to point B. Now, the Bible has some of that type of information. But the Bible is a disclosure of the mind of God himself, the person of God, the person of Jesus. It is a disclosure to you of who he is. Therefore, whenever you let your mind rest on this word, there is a delight simply to experience his disclosure to you. If you're in a relationship with someone, especially a romantic, a romantic relationship, how does that relationship go if that person approaches you and says, hey, I wanted to ask you about something, and you immediately say, why is that relevant to what we're doing right now? That's not going well. Right? Yet that's somehow how we approach the Bible. We go to the Bible, it's a, book, a, a, a thing of how-to's. It's because we don't understand that, yeah, there's some how-to's in the Bible. They do help us. We were made to flourish in a certain way. We were made to worship this God. He does give us direction and following that direction is a way of prospering for sure. But that is tangential to the bigger reality that this is a, a loving, sharing, opening of the mind of God to you to bless your soul and commune with you. And when you let your mind rest upon Scripture, understanding it's not your job to conjure up delight within yourself. It's simply for you to know that this book can conjure up delight within you. The Bible speaks about its own ability to conjure up things within us when we don't have it within ourselves. And so it has the capacity to preserve us in suffering. The psalmist says in 119.92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Now, when you're being afflicted, why would you ever turn to Torah? When you're being afflicted, you don't have agency to do anything about it, usually. That's the problem with the affliction. See, it's not about Torah being a book of agency. It's about when I turn to the law, I am sustained by the presence of God himself coming through his word and the power of his spirit to my weary soul. The way of wisdom delights in the law of God, knowing that this law includes promise. And this law is not just a transactional manual, but a self-disclosure, a life-giving word to weary souls. And finally, the way of wisdom bears fruit. There's kind of a chain that we're seeing here. You move from ascribing judgment to yourself to giving it to God, that leads you to a place where Jesus is not just judged, but now he has life for you. Jesus has life for you, communes with you in his word. He meets you there and blesses you as you meditate on his law. And from that place of communion, from that place of safety, you bear fruit. So they have this beautiful description 
of the one who meditates. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. All that he does prospers. From this place of communion, this fruit comes up. Now, this is a beautiful image. This tree by a river being supplied with water. It is a picture of a healthy system in a way, isn't it? Deep roots, green leaves, everlasting supply. This healthy system yields a healthy kind of productivity. Isn't this what we long for? A more healthy kind of productivity? I don't agree with almost anything Karl Marx had to say, but he said something very good about work. He said, people are separated from their labor. <laughs> Concept of alienation. There's distance between myself and what I produce. Good observation, bad answers, but excellent observation. What the psalmist is saying here, if you commune with Christ, you're going to bear fruit in a different kind of way. You're going to bear fruit that doesn't consume you itself. The tree remains with its green leaves. How many of you have been in seasons of bearing a lot of productivity while your leaves withered, your branches rotted, your roots were shriveling, and all the productivity you were bearing was coming at great cost to yourself? The psalmist is saying, not so in the way of wisdom. Commune, dwell. The fruit comes from a healthy system. It doesn't consume the system itself. And this fruit comes seasonally. We're here gathered together taking one day out of a busy week. And you know what? God wants us to have busy weeks. He wants us to be busy, engaged people. And he wants us to pull aside this one day to gather together, to commune. And this communion we have together is a signpost of a greater communion that awaits us with him forever. And it's a, it's a reminder and a reinforcement of the communion that we have with him throughout the week individually. But we pause and we recognize fruitfulness is important, but it should come seasonally. It doesn't come 24-7. That's not the way of wisdom to try to be 24-7 productive. That's ultimately a way of destruction. And as this psalm unfolds, that's what we see. We see that those who think they know better, those who put themselves in the place of judgment, end up bearing not fruit, but they end up being like chaff of wheat. Now, in New York City, you probably don't know about wheat chaff as much as you do about roasting your own coffee. If you ever roast your own coffee, I did it for like a week. It takes a special person. I admire you if you do that. I love to share your coffee, but it's work. Unless you spend, the less money you spend, the more work it is. The more money you spend, the less work it is. But the cool thing about it for me as a pastor, I actually understood something about chaff. Because when you roast coffee, it makes chaff. And you shake it and the stuff just like, it's like effervescent. It just takes off. And this picture of like, this is going to be your life if you don't learn to dwell with Jesus. It's a sobering picture. And if that were all there was, that wouldn't actually be good news. That would be bad news. But the good news is that Scripture says that Jesus Christ himself is the way of wisdom. And he invites us, he invites you 
to dwell with him today. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, says the Apostle Paul. That invitation is for us all to dwell with Jesus, to surrender the place of judgment to him, to delight in the fulfillment of his promise to save you, and to let him guide you and bear you with fruit from now and for days to come. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have entrusted all judgment to the Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are such a sympathetic judge, such a sacrificial and loving judge, indeed a judge who became and is a Savior. And Holy Spirit, we bless you that you bring Jesus to us, bring us to him, and keep us close to him all of our days. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.